Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back for another podcast episode. As you have heard in the intro, we are a podcast about movement. We are for exercise and movement professionals and amateur aficionados. We try to break down the knowledge silos, interviewing people of a variety of career paths and interests who all are involved in making people move better. Today, we have our second physical therapist. A few months back, actually, probably almost a year ago, we interviewed Sam Wood, who's a physical therapist out in Colorado. Today, we have Dr. Maury Kolber, and I wanted to have Maury on for a couple of reasons. First of all, Maury teaches in a physical therapy program. Second of all, he works as a clinician. And third of all, he's very active in the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And I think that's somewhat atypical for most physical therapists. He'll correct me in that he understands that doing the basic therapeutic exercises may not be enough to return an individual or an athlete to the performance or the quality of life that they want. So Maury, thank you for taking time at the NSCA National Conference to talk to Moving to Live. Thank you, Ben, for inviting me. I guess the first question I always ask everybody that we interview is you meet somebody in the elevator at the conference and they say, oh, what do you do? What's kind of your 22nd or your 32nd? This is what I do professionally. My quick is that I am a physical therapist. And then I can typically expand on that. I'm a clinician, academician, and I dabble in some research. And we're going to talk more about that in the second part of the interview. To me, one of the most interesting things that I have the opportunity with Moving to Live is to find out people's stories, how they got to where they are. So you're involved in a movement field as an exercise person, as a physical therapist. Were you an active kid growing up, or was this something that you found later when you went to college? I think much of, of what I do and my interest for what I do stems from my own experiences, and that's not atypical of physical therapists. Uh, I started weightlifting probably when I was 13, 14 years old, reading muscle and fitness magazines, um, gained a lot of knowledge from Joe Wider back in the days, and 
Subsequently, by the time I was in high school or early college, I injured myself, which again is the typical story of why somebody chose to become a physical therapist. I injured myself and subsequently pursued physical therapy as a result of the experiences that I had with physical therapy and my interest in rehabilitation. And I know we've been friends for well over 10 years, but I've never really asked you some of these questions. Where did you do, where did you grow up? So I was born in Philadelphia, but I grew up in South Florida, Broward County area. I now uh, reside in Palm Beach County. So I went to University of Miami. That's where I got my physical therapy degree. I practiced in Boca Raton for about 10 years and decided it was time to go back to school. And I went back to Nova Southeastern to get my PhD. And that is kind of an interesting thing to me. What made you decide after 10 years? Because if you're going back to school after 10 years as a working person, you're an atypical student. Good question, Ben. I think the defining moment for me when I chose to to get my PhD or pursue an advanced degree was um, probably towards the latter part of those 10 years or, you know what, about five, six years, I developed a clinical specialty. And it was in spine, the McKenzie method, and I felt like I had something to say. And I chose to do a continuing education course, a postgraduate course for clinicians. And I had about 60 people attend. And the title of the course was an evidence-based approach to the examination treatment of the lumbar spine and sacroiliac joint. And we may have some people who don't know what evidence-based is, and as somebody who is a researcher, if you could kind of define that, because that's thrown around a lot in the profession, and you may go to a physical therapist, and they may say, we only do evidence-based. What right. is that? I think evidence. the word evidence-based has been uh, used very inappropriately, and some will think it's only research-based studies. But evidence-based practice really involves, number one, using an evidence-informed approach and not limiting yourself to research, but evidence-based practice consists of numerous tenets. Uh, one of them being consensus, the other being clinical expertise. And if you could kind of explain each of these, because some people aren't physical right. therapists. It's, that's a common language to you, not to other people. Right, so consensus is based on information put together from an authoritative body. So like the American Physical Therapy Association. American Physical Therapy Association, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, when there is a position statement. Uh, expertise, which could be argued on many levels, but that's a defined competency in a particular area. For example, in physical therapy, we have board specialty, and it's optional. So not every physical therapist is a board specialist or board certified. There's something like, if I'm correct, 13 different board specialties? There are numerous. I don't know the exact count number, but for example, I, I have an orthopedic board certification. And I think the public assumes that everybody is board certified and we're not. It's optional now. You're licensed in most states, but to become the board certified is additional education. And if I remember correctly, you have to pass a test for it also? Yes. So to sit for the board exam, you have to have a documented history of clinical hours, documentation that you've seen a certain number of conditions, and then you apply to sit for the exam. And then only once accepted can you sit for the exam. Uh, once you sit for the exam, and if you pass, that certification is good for 10 years. At the end of the 10 years, you have to recertify, take the exam again, or portfolio 
uh, your way through recertification. Portfolio, meaning you show that you've done other education for that or what? Exactly. So I'll use myself as an example. I'm on the Committee of Content Experts. So I am privy to the exam items for that exam. I mentor item writers through that process. So for me, being privy to the exam questions, retaking the exam was not necessarily an option. So I presented a portfolio of my research, my clinical activity, my service, and my teaching, and through that process, achieved recertification. And I know this is going to be a little bit different from some of the other Moving to Live interviews because we're really going to delve into academics and clinician stuff. Some people are listening to this and they're very aware that there are specialties. I know the orthopedic specialty. I know there's a pediatrics, there's a sports medicine, a variety of others. And you just described what it took to become uh, orthopedic certified. And there's going to be some people who are going to listen to this and they're going to go, well, he got a degree in physical therapy. Then he went back and became a, got a PhD. Then he took additional training to sit for another exam. Why is he doing all this work? When's he going to grow up and actually get a job? So why all, all of this? Because the, the kind of the joke about PhDs, and I can say this since I have one, is it stands for piled high and deep. That's right. not you having known that, having known you for quite a while, but why the continued search for more, more information? I think the continued search stems from many reasons. Number one is, is sort of practicing what we preach with our students. We push them to excel. We push them to test themselves. And I think for public awareness, there needs to be some defined level of competency. Uh, the physical therapy profession, for example, is trying to follow that of medicine, whereby somebody graduates, they pursue a residency. So I think a lot of it is just having a defined level of competency, but also having a little bit of a glutton for, for punishment and constantly testing myself. And there's something to be learned from every process. Any plans to get a, any other specialty certifications through the American Physical Therapy Association? At this time, none. There, there are none. I know there are some people who listen, and as you said, they may think everybody is board certified in as a physical therapist, where it's licensure with specific certifications. Why the decision as far as when you were a physical therapist to specialize in spines? Because I know if you look at the various uh, physical therapy clinics that are out there, probably nine out of 10 are going to have somewhere in their advertising sports medicine because that's cool. That's hip. And as somebody who was an athlete growing up, that's kind of what I thought of. It's like, oh, you know, you get a sports injury and if you don't have access to an athletic trainer at your school, you get your mom or your dad to take you to a physical therapist. Um, now that I'm older and have had back pain, it's like, I like the idea of people who specialize in spine because whereas somebody who's a generalist may see one or two spine people a week and the guy who's the specialist or the woman who's a specialist in the spine is going to see 50, 60 a week. So what was the decision after becoming a physical therapist to say, hey, I want to be a spine specialist, not to imply that you don't have knowledge in other areas? Right. My decision probably stemmed a lot from that concept of evidence-based practice and the setting that I was at. So my first 10 years, I worked in a uh, outpatient setting that was owned by a group of orthopedic surgeons. And initially, when I graduated from school, the, the move for most physical therapists was to specialize in manual therapy. And for people who don't know what that is, kind of the brief definition so of manual, manual therapy. Manual therapy or the thing is a is a type of treatment whereas we do things with our hands. You know, we help people move better, we mobilize, manipulate joints, soft tissue mobilization, 
So I'll ask the question that I know the answer to, but some people listening are going to want to know, isn't that what a chiropractor does? Isn't that, that's a good question. In fact, we have a whole practical exam and our curriculum set up based upon teaching our students how to answer that question. And what we do is, is very different than what a chiropractor does, meaning the intent and the indications are what are, what makes us different. So we perform mobilizations, manipulations to improve mobility. We use the evidence to help us select our patients, and we use clinical prediction rules. Uh, we don't mobilize to put something back in place or to adjust. Uh, we also recognize that the value of manipulation, for example, of the spine extends far beyond that pop. So our intent and our decision to do it is much different. And then the drive for what we're going to achieve from it really is to improve mobility, not to fix a subluxation per se. So very different. With the physical therapy, you get the PhD. You've already been in clinical practice for 10 years. And right now I know you are a professor at Nova Southeastern and you still are in clinical practice. Kind of talk about the decision to say, I'm going to get a PhD as opposed to saying, I'm going to get a DPT. Um, and then we'll transition kind of talking about how you decided to get into education. Okay. So this is a, a good question. So five to six years into practice, I got my McKenzie credentialing. And at the time that was the only type of approach sort of certification that was really diving into research and studies. And I decided to teach that course I was telling you about. And I had about 50 or 60 people there. And I just disseminated everything that was out there from an evidence-based perspective. And it was an interesting moment for me because about 50, 60 therapists were there, many with more experience than me. About half of them were angry. Uh, they didn't feel vindicated by what I was presenting. Uh, some certainly did, but there was a lot of people in the room arguing with me because they weren't happy. The evidence that I was presenting wasn't in line with what they were doing. And at the very end of that two-day course, somebody raised their hand and they said, Maury, you're teaching a course on evidence-based medicine. What studies have you published? And at that point, I only had one study done and it was a capstone from college. And I felt inferior. I felt like, wait a second, I'm, I'm preaching something, but I'm not doing it. And that moment was really my drive to, to get my PhD and to get an education and understand how to carry out research and pursue studies. And I know as somebody who teaches in a university setting, you are very aware of the differences in a PhD versus a master's degree. And I know that there are not a lot of schools that offer PhDs in physical therapy at many schools uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is it all schools now offer, physical therapy schools offer a DPT or a doctor of physical therapy? Right. At, at this point, all U.S. physical therapy schools offer a doctor of physical therapy. And it's important for the public to understand that is an entry-level doctoral degree, meaning you get a bachelor's degree and you apply. It's it's not a terminal degree by by any means. It and is this, an is kind of, this is kind of our educational moving to live for people who aren't familiar with education, et cetera. What do you mean by an entry-level degree and what do you mean by a terminal degree? Okay, so entry-level degree is basically the entry-level degree that you need to practice a particular profession. Now, this is similar. It's not just PT. Chiropractic is an entry-level doctoral mm -hmm. degree, uh, optometry. So at um, this point in time with athletic training, uh, it's, it's currently changing, but this is uh, August of 2018. 
2018, an entry level for athletic training is a bachelor's degree, although that will change fairly recently. Correct. So a terminal degree is an advanced degree, such as a PhD, uh, PsyD, Doctor of Health Science, EDD. And the PhD differs from those in that there is more of a emphasis on doing actual research that either solves a problem or provides new knowledge in a specific field. Correct. So PhD is advanced beyond that of the clinical aspect. It's more of a re- research teaching aspect, and it depends on the program. So our the program I went to was a PhD in PT, so there was health policy related to, to medicine, there was research, there was teaching. I guess the question would be then, does somebody who has a PhD in physical therapy, do they, if they're currently getting it now in 2018, will they have gotten a DPT before that and then the PhD is an additional doctor degree? So this is a good question. So our accreditation body is called CAPD. So that's the Commission on Accreditation of Physical Therapy Programs. And they require faculty to have at least the degree that the students are getting. So you need to have a doctoral degree. So someone like myself has a master's degree in physical therapy. How do I how does that work for me? And for those of you who don't know, Maury having a master's degree means he's relatively old. Very old. <laughs> 20, plus, 20 plus years. So getting a PhD in PT satisfies that accreditation requirement as well. Therefore, I'm not required to get a DPT. And for me, the, the choice is, well, why wouldn't you go back and get it? You know, they do have what they call transitional DPT programs where you go back and you take the courses that were missing from your curriculum. And the reason I, I haven't done that is because I, I teach those courses. So there was nothing to be gained by that. I teach imaging, uh, research-based classes. So there was nothing different that would have changed for me except having, you know, additional letters So kind of to follow up on that, somebody right now has earned a bachelor's degree and they say, I want to be a physical therapist. Is it correct to say they have to go to a DPT school in order to do that? And then they could also get a doctorate in a PhD in physical therapy, or could they just skip the DPT and do the doctorate in physical therapy? Good question. No, they absolutely need to have a DPT and then having that DPT then would allow them to apply for that terminal degrees such as an EDD, PhD, Doctor of Science. And I know if you're going to go into education, typically a PhD in many fields, although I know in some music fields and art fields, a master's degree is considered the terminal degree, but the PhD is. Is a DPT for a teaching in a physical therapy program, is that considered a terminal degree or does that differ from school to school? Right. No, the, a DPT is not considered a terminal degree. And in fact, our accreditation body, CAPTI, now requires or will be requiring that at least 50% of faculty of any institution have a terminal degree. And there's a very specific reason for that. And the reason is our profession needs to be producing more research. And why? Why? Well, we need to learn. We need to continue growing. We don't, we don't want to be uh, stationary. And what has happened is when you start to look at different institutions, many of these institutions are satisfying research requirements with posters, abstracts, and not clinical research studies, meaning, okay, a poster on a s- student study of your students. And they're finding that one of the reasons for it is most likely having, the, having a limitation of terminal degreed faculty. So they don't have the knowledge to direct a research. 
Correct. And that was that paper that you and I spoke about recently that was in the uh, Journal of Physical Therapy Education. It was it was a discussion paper that spoke about why we need more terminal degrees in our profession so we can't limit ourselves to to post or abstract studies on healthy people. And I know you and I have talked about this off recording a lot in the past about uh, people uh, doing research, etc. Somebody who's a physical therapist, and we'll just talk about physical therapy because you are a physical therapist, you teach in a university to, to aspiring physical therapists, and you are a clinician and have been a, been a clinician for many years. In your opinion, should the physical therapy uh, profession require more physical therapists to get the terminal degree? Because I know you can do research in an academic setting, but there are a lot of clinics that have, for example, if it's a back specialty clinic, they may see a hundred different back people a week, and that could give a lot of information provided they get subject approval and have an IRB approval for the research. That could really advance the field because they're seeing that. Whereas if you're doing it in a university, you got to figure out how do I find a hundred people with back pain? Right. I don't think that clinicians should be required to get a PhD. I, I think what we need is collaboration. So I think we need to see more partnerships between academicians who have the ability to write, the time to write, the ability to get an IRB approval, partnering with clinicians who are, who are in the grind and who are treating the patients and who are, have the ability to capture those subjects. And I think it's, it's more partnerships that we need. Um, getting a terminal degree is costly. It, it takes a lot of time and many clinicians don't have that ability to work 40 hours a week while they're getting a degree and pursue a dissertation and carry out that project. And I would imagine some clinicians also just don't have the desire to do research. They want to treat people with treatment protocols and make people better. Right. And we need both. We need clinicians and researchers. You know, unfortunately, if you think about that partnership aspect, it's, it's really needed beyond what we think because a lot of the people who are out there putting out the guidelines or who are putting out the information are not clinicians. So in some cases, we have people who are dictating practice who aren't practicing themselves. So these partnerships really become valuable because we, we need a meeting of the minds. And I know both you and I are longtime and active members of the NSCA, and there's always the battle in the NSCA when people get together at a conference and talk like we are here. The practitioners or the strength coaches and the personal trainers say there's too much research and the researchers say there's too much practical stuff. Is that a similar battle in physical therapy that the, the uh, practitioners or the people working in the clinic say, man, there's just too much research coming out with physical therapists and the students come out with too much research skill and not enough practical skills? Or is that something that's just devoted to organizations like the NSCA? I think it's always sort of a teeter-totter effect where we sort of you know, move towards one end and then back to the other. And I don't think that's ever going to end. I think at times that we don't want research to, to paralyze clinicians in their decision-making. We don't want to undermine clinical gestalt and, you know, clinical experiences. Yet at the same time, we don't want clinicians turning a blind eye to compelling research. So I think with anything, there, there's a balance that, that's important. I'll probably be putting you on the spot with this. I know one of the individuals that I've interviewed in the past is Dr. Gary Chimes, who's talked about his experience with physical therapists and their clinical skills. Right. And I'm probably paraphrasing him, but he says that some of his best 
physical therapists that he's sent patients to as a physician are physical therapists who have bachelor's degrees. And some of the ones who aren't as good, maybe not because they're incompetent, but they just don't have the experience, have the doctorate of physical therapy degree. Can you comment on that as somebody who's been in the field for a while? I know having a master's in physical therapy means you're not quite old enough to be back in the dark I'm, ages. I'm middle ground. <laughs> you're middle ground. But I know, I remember when I first started, some of the best physical therapists I knew had a bachelor's degree. And it's like, man, this guy is really smart. Yeah. Well, I think what he's really stating is those people with more experience, he's rating as being better than those that are, that are newer in practice. And there's always a value of experience, but times have changed as well. I think many of those physical therapists who have bachelor's degrees were practicing at a time where we were able to think a little bit more, where we saw one patient an hour, we did an hour-long evaluation, and that was okay. That doesn't exist today? Well, somewhere mid to late 1990s, health policy changed, and we started to see more managed care. And physical therapists now have to contend with numerous patients, paperwork requirements that are probably four to five times the amount of what they were 10 years ago, let alone 15 years ago. So that person with the bachelor's degree in physical therapy was able to practice at a time where the paperwork requirement wasn't as heavy, the patient volume requirements weren't as heavy. And I think it's it's handicapped people in their ability to, to practice the way they want to. And I'm kind of curious as somebody who's been a physical therapist for a long time, I had a few weeks of physical therapy last fall due to a back injury. And I was talking to my therapist and I asked him, I said, how many patients do you need to see a day? And he said the clinic requirement where they wanted them to see was 24 to 28 patients a day. This is a full-time clinician. When, wow. When you, <laughs> Maury's eyes just got really big. If you can think back to when you first started as a uh, practice person, I'm assuming that hearing that number, that's a lot, would be a large number for you. Do you remember how many was, what was the expectation back when you were a full-time clinician? When I first started practicing, we saw one patient an hour. We were given one hour to do evaluations. The paperwork again was, you know, 20% of what it is now. So times were, were much different. We, we got to know our patients. We spoke to our patients. We tried different things. We experimented a little bit more. I think now you have to go into it with a very defined expectation that you have a certain amount of time, that next person is going to be there. And do you want to be that clinician who stays an hour and does their paperwork when everyone else goes home? So with your comments on the increased paperwork doing, due to managed care and what I just mentioned with it, it would not be unfair in some situations to say, the workload has tripled or even quadrupled for some physical therapists from maybe what it was 15, 20 years ago. It has. You're, you're 100% correct. I will tell you that there are some regulations in terms of what you can do and see within a certain time period. And you, when you do your notes, you justify the time you spend with each patient in terms of one-on-one. -on -one. And you know, something that's well over 20 a day seems to me like excessive if that person's not working a 15-hour day. We've been talking with Dr. Maury Kolber. Maury is a physical therapist. He's a professor in the physical therapy program at Nova Southeastern in South Florida. He also is a clinician. I think he's given us a really good background as far as what it takes for an education to become a physical therapist, the difference between a DPT, a PhD, the difference between a clinician and a researcher. And when we come back in two weeks, we're going to explore that a little bit more, kind of get into 
exactly what is a physical therapist because I think a lot of people hear it and say, oh yeah, that's who I go to as injured. But I know Maury can talk about the different uh, methods of treatment, whether it's passive treatment, uh, active treatment, and I know he's got some specialties. And I think we'll also be interested to learn a little bit more about uh, the McKenzie technique so that you can learn that the physical therapy just isn't pulling something out of his hat or her hat when you go and see them. So Maury, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live for part one of your interview. And I look forward to seeing you in two weeks and picking up on part two. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.